some of the best players and some of them have been named best player in the world. We have two or three of them in in our New South Wales team. And those girls, they could just hold handstands, like just freestanding, walk 20 metres just for fun. And I think it goes back to usually early development, giving that exploration movement and playing. Like I know when I was little, we're in lunch break, we used to just go do handstands. Who could hold the longest handstand? That was the game for the entire like 40 minutes of lunch. And I've noticed it again. I had a, I was working with a development about 15 year old men's rugby. And I had this kid and he was a high level men's gymnast. And just again, he was probably the smallest on the team, but he would absolutely make impact. Everything he did was just quality movement. That was Nikolai Morris, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by SimplyFaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. It is also brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs, and you can get 15% off of your order by heading to LostEmpireHerbs.com slash JustFly. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, uh, you'll notice that one of the recent uh, muses of mine, it's not really a muse, it's, it's really important, is just the integration of human movement into a athletic performance-based system, which sounds obvious, but by human movement, I mean gymnastics, roughhousing, grappling, monkey bars, rolling and tumbling and climbing, and all the things that we did as children, or hopefully we did as children, that can make a big impact down the line once we become mature athletes. The question then becomes, well, what if we have mature athletes, high school, college, professional, who are definitely not up on their movement ability? And that's when I think that this stuff is so important. We can serve our athletes in many ways, uh, one of which is improving the traditional lifts and things like that. But a huge untapped uh, resource and area, as I see it, is that of the integration of human movement, gymnastics, and, and everything that comes with it into what we do as athletic performance coaches. So our guest today is Nikolai Morris. She's a strength and conditioning specialist with High Performance Sport New Zealand. She's the lead strength and conditioning coach with the New Zealand women's field hockey team, the Black Sticks. And she also coaches an international elite high jumper. Nikolai's career origin was as a swimmer, but she is much more than just a sea-based sports performance coach. She's always had an eye for movement. She does a ton of, of different diverse movement activities in her own training, gymnastics, pole vaulting. And she has taken this love for movement into a multitude of land and sea-based sports. She's worked with swimming, track and field, rugby, water polo, and soccer, just to name a few. And she is a rising coach in the South Pacific. On this podcast, Nikolai is going to go into her progression of gymnastics and human movements uh, from a wide uh, variety of athletes, from younger athletes to older and more mature ones, and how and where these progressions fit in. She's also going to get into some correspondences and correlations that she's seen just in regards to athletes' movement ability and their proficiency on the field. Nikolai is also going to touch on building belief and buy-in in athletes and administration from the perspective of a female working in the industry. And lastly, uh, she's going to chat a little bit about her experience with blood flow restriction training or BFR. This episode really puts a lot of things that we've talked about before on the show together, and there's tons of practical insights. I know you guys are going to get a lot out of it. All right, let's get to episode 239 with coach Nikolai Morris. So outside of us, swimming, like when did you decide you wanted to get into like strength and conditioning, physical preparation? Where you, was your first love really training or competing or how did that materialize? So I, I was telling you this earlier, I, my body is not very good for sport. Um, I break down quite easily being both hypermobile and having I, what I assume is quite poor bone density. So I was injured a lot 
as a swimmer. And I always loved the coaching side. Like even as like a 12, 13-year-old, I was like really, really interested in what the coaches did and how they communicated and how they looked at movement. And anytime I got injured, which again was relatively frequently, so for example, there was a period where I could only kick for five weeks because I'd hurt my shoulder. And I would just watch the good swimmers and the ones with good technique and watch their movement and what made them good. And I think it was always a fascination with movement. Um, I remember in high school watching movies where the protagonist was meant to be good at running or some form of sport and watching them and getting a bit offended that the actor they had picked could not move well and dissecting their movement. So it came back to movement for me at that age. And then when I was about 13, 14, I got introduced to a private strength and conditioning company by a classmate of mine who was a basketballer and I'd never really heard of strength and conditioning. We'd done a little bit of weights when I was in swimming or when I with one of my clubs and my very first experience with weights was trying to do a 20 kilo bench press. I was about 11 years old and I probably weighed about 30, 38 kilos. I was very little and uh, having no spotter and getting told to do the bench press and literally picking up the 20 kilo bar and dropping it on myself and having to get saved. But thankfully that didn't put me, put me off. But yeah, I, I went to this private strength and conditioning company as my first foray into S&C and I really liked it and I found it really fascinating and I always wanted to go into the exercise science field. I knew what area I wanted, but I didn't know specifically what part. So I was dabbling with things like sports psychology. At some point I really enjoyed that side. And yeah, once I found out that strength and conditioning was an actual profession that I could go down, I contacted the company that I had trained out of just before I started uni and asked to go intern with them. And that's kind of set me on on my path. I like that when you were that young of age, you were really interested in the movement. I feel like I, I mean, cause I, I love movement myself and all sorts of biomechanics, but I, I don't know, maybe I was just so like self-centered that I just didn't care. I, I think maybe that was it. I didn't start really caring until I think I actually had to coach people when I was 23, 24. And I'm like, Oh, maybe this is more important than I thought it was I, for, for whatever reason. I wish I would have got that, uh, you know, that early <laughs> head start that you did. Uh, and I, I know that you're really into uh, gymnastic work and, and those types of things. Do you feel like that was born out of just this this love for movement and seeing how that can fill gaps or tell me a little bit about how you incorporate um, gymnastic work or just work to improve the movement quality maybe from the general sense of the athletes you work with yeah so coming from that movement side I would say I'm a little bit less typical than most strength and conditioning coaches who who go into it because they love the weights room and that's that's fairly typical for most and like I I do love the weights room but it's not the be all and end all and Again, I my athletes squat and whatnot, but if a squat would make all athletes Olympic champions, we'd have a lot more weightlifters and a lot more people who do weights performing at much higher levels. So I think we sometimes miss that if they can't if they can do a squat great, but they can't play their sport, that's no use. We've got to actually get that transfer and that connection. And that kind of idea of gymnastics being the basis of all movement, in my opinion, you you do every type of movement. You're aware of your body and space. Um, if you've ever worked with ex decent level gymnasts, they don't have to be elite level, but decent level gymnasts in a different sport. No matter if their bodies are too small for the sport or what, 
they are always significantly better at movement than the others and make up for their maybe size differential by being so coordinated and so able to pick up movement. So that's kind of where I started linking the gymnastics side. And I got really lucky. I worked at a school that had an unbelievable gymnastics facility um and it was a, a high school and they had a full competition outlay it was awesome and they taught from the very first year of school so prep all the way up to final year of school and the boys had to come in and do gymnastics once a once a term uh, once a year sorry and learn different movements and I got an opportunity to learn and coach gymnastics through that program and seeing how it linked and seeing how they teach really young five-year-olds how to do gymnastics as all the way up to how it transfers into the guys who are making the elite teams and seeing how it could link and make people who are not necessarily gymnasts but just a normal athlete, how it could make them better. And we developed a program for year eight and year nine. So, sorry, year seven, eight and nine, which were the first years of high school. The gym was getting too crowded and there wasn't enough space to bring every athlete into the gym. So instead, we developed this program where those age groups three times a week would come either on field into the gymnastics facility and we'd do an athletic development program. I did this with a guy named Grant Jenkins and it was such an exploration of movement. So we'd do grappling, we'd do wrestling, we'd do partner carries, we'd play fun games We'd teach them how to move, but not in your typical, I guess, to an extent, sterile S&C environment where everything is done specifically. It was very organized chaos. And then when we were in the gymnastics facility, we were lucky enough to have um, like a foam pit and rings and bars and like you'd be on the trampoline into the foam pit. And there were people initially just scared of jumping into the foam pit. And they were doing backflips and things by the end of the term. And you just you let them go, what's the coolest thing you can do to get in the foam pit? And you get people doing gainers and, and flips and, and whatnot and just getting confident in their body's ability to do things that they weren't expecting they could do. And that confidence really transferred as well. They started believing they could take risks, obviously not stupid risks, but calculated risks and push their body to a place that they hadn't ever before so I think that program was really special and we were really lucky to be involved and kind of create it and then yeah I from there pretty much used influences of it whenever it was relevant so my main three gymnastics elements that I use are tumbling hanging variations and handstand variations and depending on what athletes I've got has a higher relevance so at the moment I'm working in hockey and the people it has the most relevance for is my goalies so we're starting to do some gymnastics based work with them to strengthen their spatial awareness and body awareness and ability to move from one side of the goal to the other explosively so it's a bit of fun I like it as you were talking I I had this thought hit me it's almost like (laughs) because I've been thinking about this stuff a lot and then maybe it comes full circle it's like it's almost like 
you have like the force end of things like the squats and deadlifts and the force plate and isometrics and all that stuff. And it's all good. And then on the other hand, other hand, we almost have our relationship with gravity in like the spatial realm. And a big part of the way my paradigm is going in, in movement, if I have the two poles, I have one just pure force and one I have yielding almost yielding and coordination. It's kind of like you're, you're giving your body up to the power of gravity and space kind of like it, it's like there's a surrender. There's a surrender when you do a even when you do a flip on a trampoline something simple and i i think about um one of the athletes at the gym i'm working at right now he just graduated and he's going to be a division one running back and i saw a video of him in the sand doing a back round off to a back back flip and and i also you watch some of the highlights coming out of the nfl you got these guys doing flips over receivers and running backs doing flips over opponents in the end zone and it's like okay look like there is i don't know if we can call this specific truly but some there is something about having that early relationship with just kind of letting your body kind of surrender to working in space that I think is really powerful. And even my kids, like they're two and four. And one of the things I really like doing is they have a little like place, a little plastic place set and a little slide. And we have a, a bouncy house type mat at the bottom. And I'll just hold a ball out and they'll jump and grab the ball and land on the mat. And they just love it. They want to do it over and over and over again. And I'm like, this is, I'm not trying to be that dad who's training their kids, but like they're having fun. So like, let's keep doing this. I, anyways, I, I like, I love the idea of just do whatever, like do the most creative thing. I, I love that. I think that would be it. Can't we all have foam pits at our gyms, right? Oh my gosh. It would be so handy. I, I wish I had that facility that I could just transport because it's so fantastic in it. It allows them to do it in a safe way where they can take those risks and they didn't get hurt doing it. It was great. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And I was going to say that football player um, at the gym uh, who can do, he's, I asked him, I was like, did you practice? Did you do gymnastics? Like, he's like, oh no, I just had a trampoline in my backyard when I was growing up. That's it. Yep. <laughs> it's just. Yep. They just throw all, they throw all kinds of fun things. And one of the kids that we actually kind of, I guess, talent ID'd would be the easiest way to call it. He joined our group and was just able to do some impressive things. Just naturally was enjoying it and trying really quite advanced stuff and I came up to him and I was like please like join gymnastics you'll you'll do really well and if you're enjoying this it's it's real fun to learn the new skills a little bit more structure but really fun to come and do the gymnastics program and he joined and I'm from memory he made the the team and got to compete in the high level competition and that was just from throwing a couple of tricks uh in training which is great yeah, I think at the, at the least, too, at the very least, absent of all transfer, I think so many athletes just are having fun and then up to yeah. whatever you can transfer into. Although I think from what you've told me, at least before the show, some some teams like it more than others, too. It's, but it sounds like I, it sounds like most teams are pretty excited, even like advanced athletes or maybe tell me a little bit about like along the age groups, like how much are you doing this with like, let's say, a group of you know younger, like 12 year old, 14 year old, call, you know, mm-hmm. 20 post you know professional how does this um gymnastic and movement work fit in depending on like the level of the athlete yep so i had a nice period when i was starting out where i was working across a lot of different groups so i was working across from yeah five-year-olds all the way up to elite professional athletes even up to 30 plus and i worked out initially i had the mindset of like oh they're professional. They shouldn't be doing stupid things like little games. They're not going to enjoy it. Why would I put that in? And I slowly changed my mindset, thankfully, and 
I don't care if they're five years old or well, five years old, obviously their entire, entire training session would be fun stuff. They'd be learning, but it would be in a fun environment because that's, that's what you should be doing at that age. It's, it's all about play. But we forget that our elite athletes, no matter how professional they are, no matter how much money they're making, they didn't get into sport, at least in my opinion, majority of athletes, don't, they don't get into sport because they can make money. They get into sport because they love it and they have fun with their teammates or they, it's just about joy. And if you can create constraints around something, a, a drill or a game, that means they're, they're doing what you need out of them, whether it be you need high-speed meters or you need them to be working on hip knee ankle control, whatever it is. If you can make that fun, they're going to buy in, they're going to enjoy it, they're going to want to train with you. So why, why wouldn't you give them those skills if you, can, if you can make those constraints around it and do what you need to do? Why would we want to make it boring? We want them to enjoy training. People perform well when they enjoy it, not when they're hating it and not wanting to be there. Yeah, that's been a huge shift in the, before I was a full-time strength coach, I was a full-time track coach. And in my period of life as a full-time strength coach in the university sector, that was the biggest shift that happened for me. Or one of the big ones was just going from kind of this point where I was trying to hyper-analyze the needs of the sport and make this really, and I still, there's nothing wrong with analyzing, but it, but it was like, it, to me, that was more important than almost that smile on the athlete's face. Like, are they enjoying this? Are they having fun? Like, and, and it was almost like, maybe part of it too, is you're trying to come into a new place and everything is under your thumb, you know, look, you know, look how much of a hard ass I am and whatever. <laughs> and, but eventually you get to that point. It's like, look, like, you know, you want those athletes to come in and have this be, you know, either the best part of your, their day or the second best part. Like it should be a really enjoyable experience. So I, I can't um, resonate more with that what you just said. I, I'd love to get into, so you said, um, I wrote them down, tumbling, hanging, and handstand work. Could you, uh, like, I know, like, hockey is a big uh, sport you're working with now, which, I mean, hockey and gymnastics seem to probably, you would think they're pretty far apart, but I'd be curious how you're using that with, like, some of your teams and athletes you're working with. Yeah, so I think I've used some form of gymnastics, no matter how far-fetched. So some some things that I would kind of lean to gymnastics are also things you use in your weight room so like a dead hang I use that as a gymnastics progression as well as just a typical weight room progression so they kind of merge together so I've only been with hockey for four and a bit months so again at the moment we're starting off more with the goalies I will eventually do some more gymnastics work and things like handstands with the main players but we've got to get them to a level where they can withstand that and they're not going to hurt themselves and I I think we need to go back to the basics for that first whereas the goalies generally have a little bit more of a need for it it's more more necessary right now so we did a session yesterday and um, we did things like animal crawls we did dive rolls we did handstands we did some log rolls all basic progressions in gymnastics to get them to know where their body is and be able to rotate their body really quickly. But yeah, in, in things like swimming, I used a ton of gymnastics progressions for me personally. I had never ever, well, I've had chronic shoulder pain most of my life, which is the joy of doing stupid volume when, when I was little, but the only thing that took that shoulder pain away was doing gymnastics, hanging and handstand work. So I've started putting a lot more of that into my practice for swimming. I also put it in 
because swimmers tend to be a little bit uncoordinated in space. So trying to make sure they don't injure themselves on land is really important. We do quite a bit of handstand work and back bridge work for my high jumper. We do a ton of back bridge work. That I found that's been a huge benefit, especially awareness and being able to arch well over the bar. My rugby girls, back when I was working with them, we did absolute exploration movement in any way possible, which included all three of those elements. Um, and even with rowing, we did handstand work, again, similar to swimming, that awareness of space and in rowing, it's really important to understand what your hips are doing while you're on the boat. It's a massive protective method for your back too. So being able to do a handstand and be able to tuck your pelvis or arch your back where you need to to be able to create that good line was a, uh, a good one for them. Plus it adds a little bit of excitement into their training when rowing's pretty straight down the line in terms of what they do. Yeah, with the the handstands and the um hanging particularly i i so you do you usually just start like you kind of said like starting with just a hang and then you make it more complex pretty much and and just work outwards from the isometrics or do you like do you just are there athletes you can just roll into it right away or how does that go yeah there's definitely athletes like um for example one of my rugby players had been quite a high level gymnast so she was always my example i'd be like oh just just perform this for us so everyone else can see what it's meant to look like but there are some who start almost below the initial progression. Um, and I did did a presentation at the ASCA last year on this and I wrote out full progressions and regressions of where I look to go. But in terms of ha- uh, hanging, I start usually with dead hang. And to be honest, some people can't even do that. You need to have a little bit of pressure through the feet or in a band and, and building up to working on getting comfortable in like a single arm hang and a single arm hang with rotations and monkey bars and and all those skills that back when I was younger we we could just do because that's what the playgrounds were and everyone could do monkey bars but I think as a a human race we've lost that ability in a lot of areas you know, it was pretty funny when I was researching and looking for some um, inspiration for this presentation I came across this unbelievable video of it's in China and it was it's I think it's 70 plus they have this massive group of um, 70 plus year old men and women in China who go to this park and do gymnastic stuff every day Wow! and um, I don't know if you know what a giant is so a giant is essentially where your body is straight and goes the whole way around yeah, the yeah, bar around. yeah there's a 70 plus man just doing giants holy cow do you, do you have and that video like, I could put in the show notes <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah send I can it send me, it it's, right. it's just on YouTube and it's it's actually insane, like people bouncing out of splits and doing one-arm eccentric uh, chin-ups and like it just blew my mind and I think it's a mentality over um, in China and other places like that that they don't expect at a certain age you like, oh, movement doesn't matter anymore. It, they, they want to be able to move and move well all the way through and I think in a lot of Western countries, we kind of neglect that. And we're like, oh, you've you've hit your age, you're done, you can just relax now and get fat and do no exercise and slowly let yourself die. Whereas they adjust the the movement capability of these people is just unbelievable. And I think we need more of that really into into all ages. And I've been lucky doing masters sport 
and seeing what people at any age can do and it gives you that mentality of like there is no limit if you hit a certain age it doesn't mean you can't learn a new skill or you can't master something that you couldn't do when you were younger age really doesn't mean anything other than it gives you a gives you a bit more wisdom I started my career in strength and conditioning having a very manufactured approach to training. You're going to do this many sets and reps of this exercise. You're going to do it like this. You're going to do this movement prep first and everything with that. And over eight years of time as a full-time strength coach, I slowly shifted into a more athlete-centered organic approach where athletes had more options on how to do things. They could express themselves. They could move with flow. We did more gymnastics. We did more games. We did more organic learning. I will never turn back on that. Along the same lines, I've gotten into a more organic approach of supplementation, moving away from caffeine-heavy pre-workouts into herbs such as shilajit, which you may have heard mentioned by guests on this show in the past as being awesome for strength and vitality. That's why I'm proud to partner with two-time previous guest on this show, Logan Christopher and his company Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to check out some of the herbs that have led me into becoming a stronger and more vital human being, ones that I use personally, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. You can get 15% off your order there, as well as get a 365-day money-back guarantee. Again, to get 15% off your order with Lost Empire Herbs and see my top recommended herbs that I use personally, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. All right, let's get on back to the show. Yeah, I know there's so much longevity and movement too, because I... This is like five years ago. I saw this joke. I mean, it's the thing is, the, the further along we go, it's not a joke, but it's like, what's Facebook going to look like in 50 years? It's oh, like yeah. people are like, oh, I got a hip replacement. Oh, I got this. But then you also think about, I mean, just like the people just posting pretty pictures on social media, like like fitness. What do we think fitness is? And you have this idea of what this fit body looks like. But I mean, that is not sustainable. I mean, think about it. Are these people still going to be posting those pictures at 70? Maybe. But I mean, (laughs) at that point, it's more about, I mean, to me, at least, I feel like this is the innate beauty of how we move. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I think that 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 is almost timeless, even more than what our perception of beauty is. I I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like. I've just just gotten a massive mental picture of like (laughs) seven-year-olds taking like butt pictures and things at the beach. They might. (laughs) Interesting image. They say like, you know, 40 is the new 30. And, and, you know, I mean, who knows what it's going to be then. But I, but I, to me that just, there's so much timelessness. I've talked about this before on this show, but like I saw this video of these two um, Brazilian men in their 60s doing breakdance moves with kids. Like there's these teenagers and then these two guys just busting moves and there's and you hear this saying you're only as old as your spine and i really I, I'll, I'll tell you what like i think you talked about like back flexibility and the this the wrestler bridge movement is almost my gauge of where i'm at like just all around athletically like everything like just putting my hands behind lying on my back putting my hands by my shoulders and pressing my hips up towards the sky like I, you said with like your high jumper right like Yep. If I can't do like as I if I getting worse at that, that's like where age is beating me, I guess you could say if I'm if I'm getting worse at that, because my spine is less flexible, I have less like, you know, posterior chain ability. So I'm always trying to, to get that one in there. I, I do want to ask you before I forget, because you're, you're talking about these movements. And this is something at least uh, with a, a small quantity of athletes and very specifically the men's tennis team that I worked with at Cal. Uh, as I was doing more and more and more gymnastics and bar hangs. And I, I really did, at least with the last group I had, and again, this is an N of one team, small sample size, but the guys who played the top courts, uh, we would do like monkey bars and cartwheels and handstands and different types of crawls. And the guys who were the top court guys 
were the best at all that stuff and more so than they were the best at the weights or anything else. Uh, and a lot of it with that group, it was more like the people who are best at weights are the guys who wanted to be the best at weights, not because it was just, you know, uh, sometimes they weren't going to play. So they're like, well, I'm just going to get swollen. That was their mentality. But I did really genuinely feel like those guys who had just had more movement potential were the better players with that group. And then like uh, the swim teams I worked with, it was like, usually the better swimmers were just could hold handstands a lot longer. Like they could yes. either hold handstands longer or they could do it free, you know, without the wall or that there was something about that. And just like no one who was a good swimmer couldn't hold a handstand for more than like 45 or, or for you had basically, if you were good, you should be well over a minute, easy, easy yep. in that. So I'm just curious some things you've noticed with some of the other teams and groups you've worked with. Uh, you've worked with a really diverse amount of teams and groups. So do you notice any, are there any interesting or unique correlations as you've uh, seen throughout the years? Yeah, absolutely. And you were just making me think then back to, um, I worked with the women's state of origin team. Um, and, some of the best players and some of them have been named best player in the world. We have two or three of them in, in our New South Wales team. And those girls, they could just hold handstands, like just freestanding, walk 20 metres just for fun. And it's just, I, I think it goes back to usually early development, giving that exploration movement and playing. Like I know when I was little, in lunch break, we used to just go do handstands. Who could hold the longest handstand? That was the game for the entire like 40 minutes of lunch. And I've noticed it again. I had a, I was working with a development about 15 year old men's rugby and I had this kid and he was a high level men's gymnast. And just, again, he was probably the smallest on the team, but he would absolutely make impact. Everything he did was just quality movement and maybe like maybe didn't have the ability to go professional or anything like that, but he was well and truly going above and beyond what his size and shape should be allowed to do typically because he was just so skilled and aware of everything around him. And then I had a I worked with a women's rugby player and the one I was saying before who I got demoing when I could. And yeah, she was, when she was younger, you would never have guessed it just chatting to her, but she was a, a super high level gymnast and she plays for Australia as, as halfback and, just absolutely can do any movement and she's just such a well-rounded athlete like in the gym she's pulling the say she's a halfback and she's pulling the same numbers as the props and like the props hate just give her shit constantly because she shouldn't be outlifting them when she's little and she's just so strong in every movement she does and just has like hasn't done gymnastics in years so she's in her mid-30s can easily pull out a backflip or handsprings and, and whatever she does. And yeah, it just, they, the ones who do tend to be able to move in those different ways do tend to be quite superior athletes from what I've seen. Yeah. I saw that when I was um, working with a lot of young athletes in club track and field and the ones who you just, I mean, you get so many kids who just could barely put one foot in front of the other and probably were sitting playing video games all the time. And then you get a few kids who just everything you ever asked or you just demonstrate it once and they just nailed it. And you would then find, oh yeah, that, that kid was in gymnastics, you know, the last few years. They, it just, it was very common for the gymnast, the kids who were in gymnastics, even an athlete I'm, I'm working with now who's just super coordinated and on it. Um, she's done gymnastics a lot as well. And it's just the more of those you see, it's just like, okay, there's something going on here. So, um, <laughs> do you, um, like in your own workouts, like you said, um, 
like you're doing some masters uh, competitions, but do you do a lot of that stuff in your own training and your own, uh, I'm sure that's probably where you invent a lot of stuff, right? Like how does that filter into your own work? I was so lucky I, when I was living in Sydney, I trained out of a company called Delecky Strength. And um, if you go on Instagram and look them up, they put out amazing training videos as well that, that are really awesome to see. But I started training with them. I'd always wanted to join adult gymnastics. And it had always been too far away or it combined, or just clashed with coaching and just never found the ability to to find it. Like I did a little bit of my own gymnastics stuff anyway, but I, I wanted to train under people who knew what they were talking about and had great progressions and regressions. And a lot of the stuff I do comes back to what they taught me. They're phenomenal coaches and have a really nice periodized way of teaching people, which isn't always easy when you've got, say, 12 people in a class of varied intense, uh, varied abilities and you're seamlessly able to give them different progressions and regressions of the same skill. But yeah, the I I still do a little bit. I sadly when I moved to Auckland, I couldn't find a place nearby to do adult gymnastics. I'm still looking, but I do usually go do ropes every week and do some handstands and sometimes it gets pushed to the back, but I always feel better when I've done my gymnastics work and and incorporated it into my own training but I need to, I do need to make it more of a priority <laughs> again. It kind of went to the wayside when I couldn't join people and, and have fun with others doing it, sadly. Yeah. I, I've kind of been in and out of that myself in the sense that when I was in high school, I was starting to really get into like break dancing stuff. And I was never, I mean, I was too tall to be a gymnast, uh, you know, six, one or one eighty five meters. And, but I always just love watching the fluidity and grace of these people uh, doing breakdance moves. And it's just, it's funny because my uh, my mentor in the world of like biomechanics and track and field, Darian Barr, can take to always takes things back to break dancing. And one of the things that just kills me, I'm 37 now, and I can't do this move. I could do this in high school, like just watching and just self taught. It's like a single leg flare. I could post in the show notes, and yep. and so I just cannot. And I don't know why I can't do it anymore. I'm like I'm not like. And what am I? But it's funny because I actually do think that. I look at it, um, I like moves that are based out of a crab walk position where it's like, because you know athletes who are quad dominant, they can do bear crawls real well, but then the hip dominant athletes are oftentimes better at crab stuff. Like I've seen quad dominant, like good squatters who can barely get their ass off the ground doing in the crab position. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, but I, I think to myself... I, I, and so I'm right now, my mission is to be able to do that move again. And I know that what I've lost is actually transferable to athletics in the sense of, I like to think of it as like motor maps, like motor map on the front of your body, motor map on the space behind. And I think our, if we don't like, if we're not on it, I just think we lose the motor map of the space behind and all that coordination. And like, and, and I, I really do believe that ties into jumping off the run and sprinting and like all these skills and uh, we're, and it, I think it makes them more elastic in nature. Whereas if you don't have that space behind everything, it just goes into your quads. Maybe that's simplifying it, but that's at least the way I see it. So I'm, I'm trying to get that move back. I'll, maybe I'll let everyone know when I finally do have to post surely, it on social media. Surely 20, 2024 Olympics breakdancing is in if surely it, that's your you're in yeah i need something to get better at i got <laughs> that does take me to the thing of like you know if you miss this window when you were a kid right like this is applicable to the athletes we work with you know once you miss these windows you could still get better right but how yes. much how much can you get better is i i just take so much you know happiness if the athlete like the tennis player who just can't do a cartwheel to save their life it we'd go the whole year and then they do one and everyone you know but like so I don't know how much I can get better. I know I can do that move, but we'll see how much further it gets. I, I, I'm definitely pretty driven right now. 
Oh, I'm sure it'll get heaps better. It's just one of those ones that being an adult and work gets in the way and life gets in the way, but consistent training, like it just makes such a difference. And if you get the consistency together, I bet you'll be getting it in no time. Yeah. Yeah. I made some strides last week. I was doing a ton of work, like just with thoracic rotation, that crab position and spent like a couple hours doing it. And my sprint time dropped actually this week. So I was pretty stoked. I was like, yes, it had to be because of that. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but I, it definitely didn't hurt. Uh, So I want to make a a quick jump. This is just a little sidestep, but uh, roughhousing work. So uh, and this is where I'm really excited to chat with you about this because, you know, you work with both males and females. And I think that there's probably different nuances to teaching roughhousing, depending on what gender you're working with, maybe preconceived notions or anyway. But I, I'll just start by this is generally how do you use roughhousing with your athletes, what groups and just tell me a little bit about that in your practice. Yeah, definitely. So the main groups I use it for are the ones doing contact. So at the moment, for example, in hockey, we don't do too much of it. It may change, but at the moment it's not a priority. Whereas in sports, in contact sports like a rugby, you have to be good at it. You have to know how to move your body and what way to grapple because you're making contact. But I find that the girls often um, haven't had that continuous block of contact or some are coming into the sport completely new. So they've missed a a development period of knowing where to put their head in particular. And often in, um, in Australia, what happened uh, around my age and a bit younger is if you decided to do a sport like rugby, AFL, um, union league, anything like that, you did it with the boys until about age 12. And then they go, it's not safe for you anymore. And then there's no, there was no women's leagues and they take people out of it. And then they bring it back, usually mid-20s or early-20s people. There was a, an open women's league and they could join again. So it's this big, like, eight- to ten-year gap, that mo- or even longer, that a lot of people have where they weren't doing any contact. And some still have the ability to know where their body goes, but a lot don't, and especially the ones who have never done anything and are completely new into the sport. They have absolutely no idea. So throwing them into live contact situations is is just asking for someone to get very badly injured. And uh, knowing where to put your head is so, so important in those situations. So we did a lot of wrestling and chaos, controlled chaos and progressing it into more chaos, chaos work with the rugby girls and giving them exploration of space. And But in saying that, the, the guys, a lot of the time, they're – they haven't always been taught either. It's just been just do it and they've done it from a young age. So we had a, um, a 19-year-old playing first grade rugby and he always put his head into contact and it was so dangerous. He ended up with three concussions in a year and um, having a seizure on the field and having to be like stretched off the field and it was because he's putting his head into contact every time. And so I, just because – it's absolutely essential for the women doesn't mean the men shouldn't be doing it either because there's always going to be gaps in whether people haven't been taught properly or it's never been taught or even just picked up bad habits. I think it's something that needs to be reinforced so people have the skill to, to get into those movements safely. And I think that's the key. It's the safely part because you can go into contact safely. But I think um, a friend of mine and I were actually talking about it the other day he, he maintains, he's a rugby coach, he maintains that uh, no one in an NFL tackles 
properly because of their helmet, they stick their head into contact. And if, uh, if they ever played a sport like rugby, all of them would end up severely hurt. And he, he was like, we just, they just need to learn how to actually tackle properly and they'd be killing it, not that they're not already. But I think it's an interesting one when you've got things like headgear or helmets and it changes how people trust themselves going into contact and maybe gives them a false sense of security for where they're going to put their body. So I think, yeah, any sport that there's any element of contact, I think the grappling work is is so important. Would you say just kind of like gymnastics where there's like these these root layers that happen when people are children, would you say it's kind of similar, like people who probably can safely tackle and navigate these collision sports probably had an adequate amount of wrestling or roughhousing with their peers? Like, is that basically, like, I know there's a difference between football and rugby, like you said, but outside of that, do you think that's an essential thing for children who are going to get into uh, a collision-based sport? Yeah, and I think a lot of it um, depends on, on their family and growing up, so you see it a lot of the families who have a couple of boys they're just wrestling and grappling and I've heard stories from friends who have brothers and and that's just a part of what they do or their dad wrestles with them and I grew up with a sister and my uh my dad's knee's not so good so we didn't do a ton of that stuff so I'm not sure how uh how good I would go in those situations but yeah I think um anything I I should know the research better but basically even with things like languages and your your brain's able to pick up those skills in poor wording stronger when you're younger. So trying to learn it when you're older, you can still learn it. doesn't mean you can't get as good, but it takes a lot more effort to learn a skill and relearn a skill when you're older than it does when you're little. So if you have that natural base of grappling and playing and roughhousing when you're little, that it makes it a lot easier as you're older to go into those positions and, and feel confident. Yeah, I, I was kind of, you got me thinking, I mean, I'm not, I'm a little, I'm past this, at least in the terms of the groups I'm training with, but I was working, I worked with water polo for uh, about five years and there was just like my last, oh, super tough. And my last two years with the sport, the team I was working with, like they just had a lot of concussions, like way more than the first few years. And I was just curious, like, you know, is it random, but, or is it like, you know, and, and I didn't really do grappling or roughhousing. I did like a couple times with that group, but I'm kind of curious in going back if just noticing trends, like, you know, is it just, is it, is it a coordination? Is it just random chance? Maybe it was, or is there like a level of coordination that maybe these just guys don't have compared to other people? Maybe they didn't, you know, wrestle around as much or I, I, I have literally have no idea. I'm sure there's so many <laughs> factors, but it would have been interesting for me to try to draw more of those correlations perhaps in, in the yeah. gym setting. We, um, I, one of my other teams was also water polo back in Sydney and we did actually put that in their training as well. Like we'd throw a ball in and make them wrestle for it and who could get the ball out or who could hold on for 30 seconds or we'd do tug of wars and stuff like that. And just general bit of rough housing as well. And it suited those guys. They liked that fun environment. They weren't a group that particularly loved the gym. So making it really enjoyable so they would, come and want to be there and also still beneficial to them was really important to me but it's a really interesting statistic that I know through my work that I've heard the doctors and physios talk about since COVID the increase so having that lockdown when no one was doing any of their sport having we've had a huge increase of concussions when everyone Mm. returned to sport 
and that time out without that visual awareness and responding and reacting has been linked. So that was a really fascinating one for me. And I think that's um, really interesting in terms of making sure that if you've got an athlete or a group that's been out for a while, making sure they are prepared for that because their natural response isn't going to be as uh, necessarily as reactive as it was when they'd been playing a whole lot more of it. So yeah, that was really, really interesting. interesting. Yeah. It makes me think about like, you know, if you're, if you had athletes and they're like in a hall together, you could have to prepare their sport you need to have them just wrestle each other. So at least they're getting used to like some sort or some sort of like Something. you're, you're in a small room, some sort of contact based, fast paced, play based game to get that going again. <laughs> now we know, now we could do that. You know, for, exactly. Uh, interesting. Uh, with uh, female athletes, like like women's hockey, for example, do you? I mean, not. I mean, obviously, not a pure contact, but a contact heavy sport. Uh, do you do anything with that group? And 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 what's the vibe with female athletes in general? With I mean, you've talked about it a little bit already, but I'm just curious, like if they, um, you know, mentality wise. I mean, I've worked with some groups that's so like half the group, you know, with the female athletes, like they love it, like they want to like fight each other, and then half the group like doesn't want anything to do with it. Where Guys, I feel like it's been more down the middle. Like they all are like pretty into it for the most part. So I'm curious what your experiences are with that. And then um, like female hockey, for example, what things you might do. Firstly, I should clarify, considering um, you're American uh, and for American viewers, uh, it is field hockey, not ice hockey. Um, oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The, the I should cut. No, 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 no. I, I forget that it's an automatic. So for us over our side of the world, we forget that when hockey is said over your side, it's ice hockey. And when hockey's set over here, it's usually field hockey. So yeah, a lot less contact. Um, we do have some girls that love that side of things though, even in field hockey, they're the ones who just really have that grit and want to want to put body on body where they're allowed, maybe have missed their calling in a sport like rugby. Um, and then others that aren't so much physical, they're more of our uh, skills runners group. But in, in my experience, it's, it's different in different groups. So for example, in my soccer team, they there was probably like probably about a quarter of them were the ones who liked that physical side. And I tried to teach them because they do actually get a fair bit of contact in soccer and they really enjoyed it. And then the others just, we had a very young, very typically feminine group of athletes and they weren't so much into it, but it was pretty funny because we were the most physical team, I would say, in uh in the comp and if someone got bumped and hit on the ground they'd get straight back up so that that made me happy i, I liked that I'm, I'm not a big fan of the rolling around pretending you're hurt side of mm. the game um <laughs> not my favorite area but in the rugby girls that i worked with they were very much they it was it was more and i guess it is a contact sport so it's more expected but they loved that side of things anytime they had to do any grappling or wrestling man their competitive attitudes came out they got really fired up and they'd just go hard they loved it um it really fired them up which i mean that suits their sport so they picked the right one but yeah i i haven't had too many females bulk at doing that kind of stuff but it needs to be integrated at the right pace like anything you can't just go from nothing into like full-blown contact and expect that they're going to be comfortable and just like chatting to those who maybe look a little bit out of their depth and and seeing where they're nervous and slowly slowly progressing them to where they're a lot more comfortable, I think is is really important. 
I wanted to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about two units that Simply Faster now has out that are excellent for training data collection in measuring bar speeds, sprint metrics, limb speeds, and more. The first is the VMAX Pro. If you're interested in barbell tracking technology that is affordable for the individual athlete in the garage gym, but yet is accurate enough to be trusted by professional teams, then you might be interested in the VMAX Pro. The VMAX Pro is a tiny sensor that attaches to the barbell or even the body to help with lifting and jump training metrics. It'll give you immediate feedback for jumps, lifts, and even measure the motion of the bar in 3D. It includes a travel pouch and the associated app works on both Android and iOS devices. You can auto-regulate with precision with the VMAX Pro. The second unit is the Muscle Lab IMU. If you want to take your movement training to the next level, then the IMU is something you would definitely want to look into, as it's a pocket-sized sensor that can attach anywhere on the body and deliver research-grade motion real-time. With it, you can collect ground contact times during sprints, limb speeds for jumping and throwing, and even support return-to-play metrics. The sensor fuses with the rest of the Muscle Lab sensor system for even deeper insights. You can improve your movement data and get measurement that matters today with the Muscle Lab IMU unit. You can improve the depth of your workout metrics with these two pieces of technology. And if you're interested, you can head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Check out their online store where you can find these pieces and improve the depth of your training metrics today. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, and, uh, with the women's team I worked with recently, we had like a spectrum because I noticed some people weren't. It's always had like, oh, you can play these three games. And one was just like, you're just going to play like push hands. You're just going to stand oh, yeah. there and try to push the other person over. Just only hands can contact. And then like the next level was like, what did I have next? Like, like you could like maybe like stuff that was a little more integrated with like holding hands and trying to like, you know, tag the other person. And then the full go was yeah. like a little small sumo, like almost a sumo wrestling ring. And you had to hip check the other person out of it. And so I had like, some people love that one and some people hated that one. So it was just funny to see who used what. But what um did you have some favorite like kind of setups or I mean as with rugby, was it rugby specific? Or like tell me a little bit about some of the actual sets you and, and uh formats yep. you use with that type of stuff. So and and this is going back a little bit, so I um apologize if I forget a few, but there are things like uh one person lies down on their stomach uh, sorry, on their back, the other person lies across them, so like a T shape. And uh, they've got as 30 seconds to try and get up and the person lying on top has got to hold them down. Games like if they're on um, hands and feet, so four point, and the other person is like holding around their waist and they've got to like hold them down and the other person is trying to stand up to as simple as one person. So you've got two people facing each other. One, you each grab, um, for example, your left elbow so your right hand is free and you've got to try and slap each other and not get slapped. So holding each other back and try and push each other over, things like in push-up position or plank on hands and trying to pull the other person till they hit the ground. Little competitive games like that is is where I would start into the more like you chuck a ball in there and got two people and uh, if if the person with the ball is still holding it by 20 seconds and the other person hasn't, they get a point and vice versa. Just little fun games like that where it's integrating into the full contact side and then it gets more specific to what the athletes need and usually goes more to the coaching side of things. So I wouldn't go into um, trying to coach the coach's drills. That's their area. I don't need to be doing that. But the athletes sometimes would then practice 
the skills, the coaching, um, tackling skills after they did hmm. my forms of grappling to get that transfer and get the the skill acquisition across. Yeah, it seems like it'd be a good warm up, regardless too. If you were yeah. going to get into that, yeah, for sure. I like I like that idea. I, and maybe if you have any videos, I'll throw those in the show notes too, because it's like I get it, I can picture it. I, I really do love the idea of like resist. It's almost like wrestling in reverse, right? Where like the one person yep. starts on top of it and they're trying to pin them, but now it's the opposite. Is basically they're just trying to keep them from standing up. I I like that a lot. That's really cool. I um just good good ideas here. Um, all right, so. A couple more questions. One, and I'm sure you've been asked this question. I'm curious. So, like, just like building buy-in and trust with athletes, how has being um, a female coach um, impacted you with that? I mean, have you faced um, male populations that it's been more difficult? Or tell me a little bit about that process in your coaching journey. It's quite an interesting one um, because, in my experience, Often it's not actually um, a male-female thing in terms of buy-in. It's it's person-person. However, I found the attitudes of the either the head coach or the higher-ups, they're usually the ones that think that the buy-in's not going to happen because you're female, whereas the athletes don't have so much of a care. They just want someone who respects them and, and helps them to try and get where they need to be. Um, so rugby for me is a good example. I started in rugby, uh, in, I want to say 2014 ish. And my first ever experience in rugby union, I rocked up and it was me who was tiny and over a hundred men at the field, not one other female. So it's a little bit of a, uh, take a breath before you start when you first, uh, go into that environment. Um, I've had a little bit of uh, different stories. Like the guys, I, I found guys respond better to um, females and I've seen guys who respond much better to the typical male way of coaching um, as well. Um, I have, haven't have had really bad experiences as in they don't respect me because I'm female. I've been really lucky. I think uh, some of the athletes that I've worked with respond to it my style um really well and i'll share story in a second but i have had issues where they've kind of potentially crossed the line and i was young enough not to realize that so um when i first started in rugby one of the guys was real cheeky and would ask me out jokingly in front of everyone not because he wanted to ask me out just to get the reaction and looking back I, I don't blame the athlete. I probably blame the people around going that that probably should have been brought up or at least talked to that, that that wasn't super acceptable. I know it was done in an element of banter and but as soon as that happened, the respect level dropped and it was really hard to get the group back. And I was young enough then to not really say or do anything about it. However, it would never happen to a male coach and it's it's not actually an appropriate way to run a session and it takes away from you doing your actual job and when you're a young coach you're like oh I can't say anything god forbid like you've got to let the boys banter and and have fun and teasing and whatnot is fine but knowing where the level and the line is is really important and again I think that's more the higher ups probably are the ones that need to step in then because the boys are just joking around, but they, they need to be taught where what is appropriate and what isn't. Um, and then, yeah, I've had experiences um, 
And interestingly, one of my friends has a complete opposite experience. But in rugby, we have a lot of Pacific Islanders. And I have found that I connect really well with them and vice versa, um, whether that be because they've, and again, this is an absolute generalisation, so I'm, I'm not trying to characterise a group, but often um, in their families, the dad is, is quite authoritarian and their mum is the one that they go to. And I found that that may have been that connection and they liked that style of care and actually worrying about the person rather than necessarily just as the athlete. Um, and then the water polo group I had, they were, they were a different group of guys to what I have coached before. And they typically had hated every malice and see they'd ever worked with. They didn't want to be in the gym. Um, it had taken them four years to get the group back to lifting. They point blank refused. And it's one of the best groups mm. I've ever worked with. They went out of their way, and this is just a little bit of an offshoot story, but um, often as female coaches, we don't get female kit. It's usually oversized men kit that makes us look really <laughs> unprofessional. Um, and they went out of their way, organized it themselves. And for a young group of early 20, mid-20 boys, that's this just blew my mind. They went out of their way, got a shirt made specifically as a female shirt, to look exactly the same as theirs, but actually in a female cut and presented it to me. And that's, it shouldn't be um, an outlier, but that's one of the kindest things that's happened to me in coaching that they took that extra effort to care that, oh, she'd probably want to look, wear something that fit and look good. And yeah, those guys really just the care factor. And women don't care more than men and vice versa, but it does men in the past have gone more that authoritarian coaching. That's been more of a typical style for a lot of people. And my style was a bit different and really showing I cared. Like I turned up when I didn't have to. I generally wanted to know about them as a human, which is what we all should do as coaches. That made such a difference for them. And, um, and we just had such a good relationship between me and the squad and it, we ended up doing something that had never been done and, and being undefeated champions. And it was, yeah, just, it made such a difference. So I don't think a, a coach is a coach, but people are going to respond differently to people. Like some women won't respond well to me and it's not necessarily because I'm a woman. It's just because our personalities clash. I don't think that being a female makes you any worse or any better as a coach. And I think that's important. It doesn't make us a worse coach, which is often assumed that we can't hack a male environment or men are going to be uncomfortable having a female around or it's going to distract them in games, which I, I've been told by top-level SNCs that you won't work in men's professional sport or we would never hire a female in men's professional sport because having a female in the changing room would distract the men or whatever. And for me, I've asked men, if men female, coaches, everyone, it doesn't distract them. It's just what they're comfortable with. So if you bring a female in, it's not going to make them uncomfortable once that person is an integrated member of, of the community. If it's a random female that's just standing in the change room, yeah, probably a little bit weird. But we really need to um, also understand that if we, <laughs> if we put all male environments, absolutely no females around, and, and same with all female, the genders are going to act a little bit out of uh, character 
Whereas if you put it like like normal society where there are men and women, people will act normally. And I know a friend of mine who was female was working in men's pro as a physio and she got hired because they wanted a female around so the boys would learn to talk how they should in general society. They couldn't be uh, as derogatory, I guess, when there's a female around, which is good because in normal society you can't do that. So educating them how you should act in, in day-to-day living I think was really important. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of factors and I, I should stop being on my soapbox about it. But, yeah, I think it's uh, an important one that we need to address in terms of having females around males isn't a problem and um, the reverse has never been an issue. We've had male SNCs for things like professional netball and soccer and all the other sport and no one's ever questioned having a male in the change room or having a male coach coaching females. So I don't know why it's an issue in the inverse. Yeah, no, it's a, it was a really good soapbox. I enjoyed listening to your story. <laughs> actually, it's one of those things where I actually kind of, you know, there's thoughts in my head is I guess the host be like, oh, you know, how should I approach? Because this is a, I, I mean, this is an area I don't have a lot of experience with. So I'll just say this is one, I really enjoyed your story. But two, I, I like how you said that there was that team who had gone through the male coaches and it just didn't work out. And to me, and also that personality, it's not just gender, the personality is a big factor. And even for me, like I, um, one of the things I had learned from Brett Bartholomew is the idea of being like didactic, like not just being the same all the time, but having yeah. like, and for me, actually, one of the big things I had to learn through strength and conditioning was actually too, and working with teams like water, men's water polo was having like more of a hard ass side. Cause I actually have always been less like a little bit more of a, a little more of a gentle style, more intellectual. And, and I realized that, but then having to turn it up and be a hard ass too. And, but then I was turned up to being a hard ass. And then my men's tennis team didn't like that because I was stuck on that mode. And, Anyway, so I, I really, I, I liked what you said about, I mean, it, could you actually just go into a little bit about what those things from a personality perspective that you felt maybe specifically the male coaches had failed? And again, maybe not necessarily making about gender because it's, I mean, these are things that all of us can do no matter, it doesn't matter. Like we all can learn and, and be better. So you said you'd just like go in the extra mile for these guys. Like what are some things, some, some gaps that were left before that you think for that population really specifically your skill set was able to fill? Yeah, and again, it's not because they were male coaches that they failed. It just the personality didn't suit that mm-hmm. group. And they're a group of um, guys who who were quite alpha but also quite sensitive. Um, I know it sounds a little bit strange. Um, they just wanted people to acknowledge them. Men's water polo, interestingly, in Australia is um, probably lesser than women's water polo. So they were often getting scraps so they weren't respected as much. They weren't really acknowledged and um, that they had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder around that. They also had um, an Eastern European coach and Eastern European coaches, in my experience, tend to be quite hard-ass. Like this coach, great water polo coach, but yeah, like would abuse them and like quite badly to the point of, yeah, very, very much aggression and it could get personal as well. So if they had another dictatorship authoritarian coach telling them what to do it just backfires they don't they didn't have anyone who would just they just needed to be a little bit softer in their approach um and yeah they the the team just didn't like that approach they also wanted to have some control in what they did they didn't want to write the programs but they wanted to have some influence they wanted to feel like they had um some yeah, some ownership of the program. 
and like one little thing and I'm not someone who you I don't give them probably the wrong word I don't sit there and oh the team just wants this so I'm going to give them that but it's about negotiating and they didn't most of them didn't actually like your typical big lifts I was like but they obsessed with bicep kills typical now love the bicep kills they would do if I if they I wrote a program they didn't love a lot of it but I added bicep curls they would still do it so little wins like that and then um they'd never had a strength and conditioning coach in it our system was a little bit different because we were working with so many sports we weren't always um at the sports competitions depending on which team it is so water polo initially I wasn't needed at any games and the expectation was I didn't go to any games but for me, watching the sport, and I'd played water polo, but like 15 years earlier and um, needed probably a big refresher on the movement skills and how they played because I believe if you watch someone do the sport, you you learn so much more than you do just watching them in the gym. That, that's what they're there for. They're not there for the gym. They're there for getting them right for the sport. So whenever I could possibly do it, I'd go to all their games and by the second year of working with them, I attended every game and they started asking me to run warm-ups and, and things like that. So again, it's, it's not about trying to come in and be stamp your authority. It's about little progressions and eventually you get asked to stay on or get asked for more responsibility and they really want you on like, it was enough that when, when I was leaving to New Zealand, and this was so, so sweet, um, one of the players who I worked really highly in conjunction with and was a phenomenal water polo player, phenomenal person, and um, he really appreciated my style and vice versa. And he, um, we, it was about a week before I was moving to New Zealand and he um, was trying to negotiate with the club president who... Uh, had all the finances and tried to negotiate for him to pay me full time to stay on his water polo and I was trying to explain to him that no I had a contract and I had to leave but he was like no we can get you out of that we want you here so it wasn't it was a slow progress like they didn't really trust me or listen to me that well in the first couple of weeks but it was about hanging in there and and showing I cared about them as both an athlete and a person and genuinely wanting to know more about them, not just because I worked with them, like I actually cared about them as people. I wanted to know how they were doing, how they were going, how work was, if they were they were coping. And yeah, it just it went really well. Um and it just clicked and you know when it just works. I can't fully explain why, but it, it just it just worked. It was just a good group. Yeah, I love that. In my own head, I'm going through, you said, um, like, they didn't like the big lifts, but they liked arm curls. And now I'm instantly thinking of like myself being like, Oh, what's wrong with you guys? You don't, you know, like, like, and I'd probably be one of those coaches. And, and I, oh, I would have been too. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah. That like, that was many years of me being like, no, you do it my way. My wow. way is exactly right. And then learning to actually go, you can get just a little win out of doing something that isn't going to ruin the program. It's just a it wasn't the most important part and you get such a big win out of doing that one little thing that it was worth it. So they always did bicep curls. Yeah, no, it's, it's that something like that, that, you know, is way, 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 way down the list of, I guess, technical transfer and whatever textbook yeah. is 
probably going to be the thing that actually is that win. So I, I like that a lot. Uh, okay, last actually last question. That I mean, it's like then that would have been a good place to end. But I do want to ask you one more question. So maybe that's like the crescendo, and then we're like on the downhill here at the little end um, of the, the song, so to speak. Uh, but uh, blood flow blood flow restriction training. So I know not very much about this, but I know I've heard some good anecdotes of some things you've done with it. So tell me a little bit about uh, BFR and your experience and some of the things that you've used it with. Yeah, so I, I particularly love blood flow restriction. And for anyone listening, if you love it as well, I highly recommend um, following Chris Gavigulo, who's at the Queensland Academy of Sport. He not only uh, made his own cuffs, but is, I think, one of the leaders, both research and practically for blood flow restriction. He puts out unbelievable stuff um, and is someone I go to and ask a lot of questions um, about my own training with it. The For me... It just clicked. It was one of those techniques that even before I knew all the research, I was like, this just works. I just I just get it and I can't really explain it. Um, but for me, the feeling of blood flow restriction is exactly the same feeling as I get at the end of a race in swimming. And it's an awful feeling, don't get me wrong, but it, nothing ever has felt like that. And for me, how I connected, and it's not the exact science, um, but how my brain clicks it together is it works similarly to that hypoxic nature you put yourself under in swimming, obviously, when because swimming you're not meant to breathe very much and you get in trouble by your coaches if you breathe. And, uh, yeah, it, it's that same feeling. So I, when I first started working with it, I was like, oh, this would be really cool to to try and do a study and see if it helps. And I had a group of eight elite swimmers and we're going to do a post-Olympic trials and go into this blood flow restriction um, study. Unfortunately, seven out of the eight, sorry, six out of the eight retired, which meant the study was a little bit smaller. And then one of the others, he hated the feeling. He, he would get super nervous before um, getting his blood pressure taken um, at doctors and things like that. So he pulled out of the study as well. So it ended up being one one athlete who had, was also injured and going in for shoulder surgery. So he had been doing, when we did the study, he'd been doing, I think, three months of single arm training, just using one, one arm. He was unable to use the other one, but he had had a background in just swimming, so uh, single arm swimming, so it wasn't like it was a, a new stimulus. And then we did a, all we did was a three-week study, and this was my very poor attempt at a research project so those real researchers please don't judge my uh, lack of good protocol but we did a time trial just one which is not great then we did three weeks of blood flow restriction two exercises twice a week one upper and one lower Um, and we had DEXA scanned him and taken his girths and within three weeks he improved 2.6 seconds over 100 meters in swimming and this guy was a proper elite swimmer he was top five in Australia um and yeah he that's equivalent to like I think two or three years of elite training but again was only one time trial so there are challenges around that and in three weeks gained 1.9 uh kilograms of lean muscle mass over DEXA and his all his girths improved by 0.5 to one and a half centimeters and that was just three weeks of training and that was my first kind of foray into looking at how it works from a practical perspective 
Um, and I tried it myself. I missed a master's record, did three, three weeks of training with it before my next comp and managed to get the record. And again, correlation, causation, uh, you, you just don't know. There's too many other factors. But I, yeah, from then on, I was super interested in it. And um, I used it. I use it a lot in the rehab sense. We've got quite a few girls um, who are building quads and things from previous ACLs who use it. Um, we had one girl who had wrist surgery who just did body weight bicep curls and tricep extensions because she couldn't actually hold anything in her hand. So just little elements like that. And then um, another elite swimmer, I showed him it. I was explaining what I'd done with my previous swimmer and he was like, oh, I want to try this out. Um, yeah, he he thought, and again, I think a lot of it was placebo, but he refused not to use it every week. He loved it. I don't know whether it was just the feeling or what. He was like, My, I just feel stronger in the water every time I use it. It feels great. And um, I'd love to do a little bit more research probably on myself to start with because I'm not actually working with any swimmers at the moment. But doing it prior to racing, I tried it once, but I'd already put on my race suit. So that's already so compressed that it probably wasn't the smartest idea. It didn't feel as good. So doing it before I put on my extremely tight race suit would be handy. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's got a lot of value. And I think um, an untapped measure of it is we do so much training with a lot of sports that we're, we're reaching kind of the limit of what they can do. And then adding weights to that sometimes could push them over the edge, whether or not sometimes you could use BFR to do a little bit less weight and have a little less muscle damage, but getting a similar strength result, maybe in a maintenance period rather than a max strength period. But just just different things like that, I think, could be where people start to look at using it in the future. Yeah, one of the things, I had another question about it, but one of the things you just said I really like is just the idea of, I, I'm always a, you know, kind of a save the heaviest weights for like later in the season type person, regardless of like, if we can, if the athlete's good for potentiation and we can do a heavy half squat a few you know days before, you know, awesome, let's do it. But I always think about how can I give them other things throughout the year that are still cool and I'm seeing progress that aren't that. So that also strikes me as something that could be done. I, I, I was going to ask with that, like kind of along those same lines, the swimmer who set the PR and I love how your intuition kind of like your, your, the way you felt was able to lead you to this because I've used it before and I was not a swimmer like you were. And so I didn't, I don't know, my intuition didn't really say anything. So this is interesting. <laughs> if, I, if I was trying to get a really like sick bicep pump, it would be pretty cool. Um, and again, I, I just, this, that's where, but I've, but then I've seen, I, cause I, I, I've had the opportunity to work with the 2012 Olympic gold medalist in the hundred freestyle and swimming. And he loves BFR. Like, and he, I remember one day we were messing around doing like vertical jumps. Um, and you know, he likes to, he, even if he's not testing, sometimes he would like to walk over just to try to beat people. And he walked over one day and jumped a pretty good jump. Like it was about a, maybe a half inch over what I'd seen him do in the past. And I was like, wow, that's pretty good. And he's like, oh, I've been doing a lot of BFR on my legs. And so, I mean, I don't know, for him, I think it was really powerful and helpful. So I was curious if you did any like counter movement jump tests with that summer as well, or if there's any other markers outside of girth and swim time. Obviously, the swim time is what mattered, but I'm just curious for other elements. No, I would have loved to. It was one of those studies that, well, that it got a little bit rushed because uh, all of a sudden the surgeon rang and said, your surgery is mm -hmm. going to be in three weeks. So I had, uh, I think, four days to get the rest of the study 
planned and organized and I'd been like chilled and like, oh, we've got months to do this. So looking back, that's the kind of thing I would have loved to have added into the study. Also a couple more uh, time trials to make it a bit more relevant. But yeah, there are things I think I encourage people who have the time and the athletes to do that research because I think it would be fascinating. And I think swimming in particular, I think blood flow restriction has a real link to just because that's Mm -hmm. that's that hypoxic feel. But you're still burning out a lot of uh, runners, especially middle distance. That's the same kind of feeling they reckon they get, same for for rowing. So I think it's um, a challenge because – you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but at the same time you want to try and see if things can be used in a different and innovative way. So um, I would love to see people and hear practical experience of, of people using it in different ways. And um, again, Chris uses it in some really cool ways and he does it with a lot of the the track and field athletes. So um, yeah, it may be a good one to, to have a chat with him. Yeah, oh, for sure. No, for, yeah, Alex Santera forwarded me his information, so I'll definitely yeah. have to get in contact. Uh, sounds good. Um, okay, what were the sets and reps, by the way, for like the, the was it like higher? Because I think it's usually higher reps. Like what kind of stuff was that? Yeah, so the study was, um, I did what had been done in the research before, which is 30, 15, 15, 15 with 30 seconds break in between. Um, but you can go lower or you can go higher. It's usually you want that last set to be barely a, like almost gone to complete fatigue. And I think that's the the main part of what it needs to be. So you can go higher reps. I know people have gone up to like 45 reps or you can go like just sets of tens. I think Chris has done a lot of work with the lower end of reps and it depends as well if you're doing 30% of their weight or you're going way heavier and, I think there's just a lot of um, work that could be done that hasn't even been tapped from from looking at it. Sure, I'm um, sure. Yeah, it was a, with all new things. Like I have no clue. Like I literally have no idea. So I'm just part of the reason I'm asking these questions. I think it's fascinating. Um, so sounds good. Well, hey, that um, I think that wraps up all the questions I had. And uh, Nick, it was awesome talking to you today. I, I love hearing about your experiences, and it's really good chat. So thank you so much for being on the show. No, thank you so much for inviting me. It was great fun. That wraps up another show. Thanks for being here today with us. We'll see you guys next week.